Hello and welcome to another episode of Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts, Gabe, a wine professional working in wine and spirits education. And I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And today we are going to be talking about a very special brewery called... Oh, they look at the Irish! Oh God, he just pulled it right on out there. It's We're going to be talking about Guinness. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, apologize. All I'm... of my Irish ancestry just cried out within me. Hey, listen, I'm the one with red hair between us, so... Yeah, well, you know, good for you. I can say it, my ancestors were Irish. Yeah, I, I can say that too. It's just, you know, my name is literally Moore, hello. You, you, know? you are the hound of the Baskervilles. I, I am. It's all about the Moors. It's all about the Moors. It's the Moors. <laughs> um, but we wanted to talk about Guinness because this coming Friday is National Beer Day, April 7th. Yes, we will be technically a day late, I believe, on the on release that. of this, but we wanted to celebrate still. And what's a second day of celebration? Right? Especially that's what I call a party. It's a Friday, so you know that's going to bleed over into Saturday. Oh, so yeah. absolutely, I hope that you guys are able to find your beer events before the release of this episode, which there are going to be a ton. Yeah. Little little known Especially fact. if you're in Richmond. Yeah. Well, especially little known fact, Richmond is actually where National Beer Day was discovered as a thing. What what? Yeah, no, we what, what? we are the ones. Uh, Justin Smith, a local beer judge and beer enthusiast, who I believe is Cicerone certified to some degree, he was actually able to petition the government after discovering that it was due to the Cullen Harrison Act in 1933 that the definition of a Intoxicating beverage was raised from 0.5% to 3.2% alcohol by weight. You go, Justin. Yeah, yeah. Well, and because of that, they were able to brew beers in some small fashion. It was signed on the 22nd of March, and it was put into effect on April 7th of the same year, 1933. And it was later that year that they finally were like, actually, maybe we were a little uptight about the whole prohibition thing. <laughs> just just a little bit. A uh, tiny teensy bit. Maybe we overreacted a little bit. Hmm. But you can listen to uh, our podcast on the prohibition if you would like to get more information on that. Yes. So since we already did an episode on the prohibition, which we'll probably revisit at some point because it's fascinating i mean even i i believe it was oh goodness i can't remember his name but the tom what's his oh, name the mccoy mccoy yeah tom mccoy. The real I, mccoy i would love to do an episode on him specifically just he was him. fascinating oh no he he had a whole storage system that he invented that allowed for like i think it was like four to five times the amount of rum to be stored in the same space safely yeah like the guy was just an actual genius yeah apparently he never even drank I love that. Yeah, right? I love that. Right? He was just like, I, I make money, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting bagged doing this. Yeah, no, he's he was uh, amazing. And the whole real McCoy term is just, it's coined off of him. But today we wanted to talk about Guinness, which has a very special history. I believe you have a, a brief overview of the company itself. But mm -hmm. what we want to get into in this episode is not only how they were established, and kind of what they brought to the area that they were established in, as well as their contribution to the world of beer, but also how they ended up helping, specifically Ireland, out in a time of great peril. 
Yeah. So my company overview is that we have in 1759, Arthur Guinness founding the company. This was through him purchasing the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin, which is still owned and operated by the Guinness Company. The company has stayed in the family since that purchase through on to now seven generations of family ownership. Now, the family is not involved in like the day-to-day operations. They do not sit on the C-suite of the company, so they're not like, you know, CEOs, COOs, CFOs, but they are still very heavily involved in how the company operates. What Guinness is primarily known for, and what you, the listener, if you drink Guinness, probably know them for the most, is their stouts. There is a very unique attribute of their stouts, however, and that is that not only are they carbonated with CO2, as every beer that is sold on market usually is, they also have a very unique system of nitrogen that is infused into the beer when you pour it through what is called a widget, which is a little plastic ball that is currently on its second iteration. While the St. James's Gate Brewery is still in Ireland and their big main hub of production, their product is now brewed in 49 countries around the world and sold in over 120. This has led to them being one of the most recognized and successful beer companies in the world, with a profit, if I remember correctly, around the tune of $23 billion. Yeah. So they are massive. They are in the likes of your cores, your Budweiser's, and Hauser-Busch companies in terms of their selling power all around the world. And yet they're not having to actually distribute their brand into a bunch of sub-brands and stuff yeah. like that. They have kind of like one signature thing that they're known for and i I will say i do respect that they really stick with what they know they stick Mm -hmm. with stouts they have released a few odds and ends here and there under the guinness header but they really stuck with their stouts and their dark styles of beer and really honed in on perfecting both the beers themselves and the technology that they use to brew those beers Yeah, and it was actually specifically the technology portion that ended up kind of not only revolutionizing how beer was approached, but also being one of the key ways that Arthur and his son, Arthur, uh, ended up... The second. The the second. Yes. uh, Ended up impacting Ireland during their time of hardship. Yes. Uh, Now, rewinding slightly... There's this little tidbit about when they first got their property because he wasn't always in this particular business. Mm -hmm. We were saying in 1759, when he got into purchasing the land for this in St. James Gate, he had basically taken a brewery. It's actually, there's a quote, I've taken a brewery and have had sufficient experience to know the truth of the old proverb, a penny saved is a penny got. I began with great care and small capital. And though I never grew rich rapidly, I did well and was enabled to build up a solid business. This guy was kind of uh, known as being as stout as his beer would eventually become to be because of how steadfast he was in everything that he did. I wish you could see the look I'm giving Michael for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm so advocating for the use of gimmicks. Um <laughs> My gimmick stouts. Uh, (laughs) That's every other stout on the market around us right now. Honestly, true. (laughs) 
Well, and the thing is, is he was doing mostly ales uh, to begin with, but he had signed what many might be surprised to learn was a 9,000-year lease at a fixed rate. Yes, that that is accurate. There Mm -hmm. are three zeros after that nine. 9, 9,000-year lease. Can you imagine anybody being like, all right, so we're going to lock you in at a payment of, uh, let's see, we'll do $1,200 a month. And uh, about how many years do you think you'll be occupying this territory? Uh, nine thousand years does that sound good to you does that sound good can we can we can we get that your, your terms are acceptable <laughs> your terms are ex- uh but they locked it in at 45 pounds a year which is not still in effect no it was actually not even a decade before they ended up having that lease annulled because they took up a lot more property because even though he said that he wasn't becoming rich quickly he was growing rapidly as a business the, the business itself yes expanded quite rapidly yeah uh specifically when he was making these ales importers he started exporting and he was very receptive to new technologies i do think it's worth pointing out though rewinding a little bit further back that the reason he knew how to brew beer in the first place was he actually owned another brewery at one point in a place called Leixlip. I am very sorry to the Irish. I do not know how y'all pronounce that otherwise. But uh, he purchased that brewery with some money he had inherited from an archbishop who was also, I believe, his godfather, if I remember correctly. Mm. It was 100 pounds, not a lot in today's money, but at the time that was, I believe, four to five years wages. Uh, And he purchased a brewery with that. And he learned to brew from working in a public house, a.k.a. a pub, that his stepmother was uh, brewing at. Yeah, so he ended up having both capital and experience. Mm -hmm. Certainly not an obscene amount of wealth, not a too-big-to-fail type of situation. His family was fairly, not impoverished from what I read, but they were not wealthy by any means growing up. No, he, he had to create something steady. Obviously, I I don't believe in judging people for where they come from. I believe in evaluating people for what they do with what they have. And in his case, I mean, I kind of can't hold any marks against him. Mm-hmm. Because once he got successful at that, once he kind of knew what he was doing, he decided to expand in a reasonable way. So the innovations, though, that he started to, to do... so. Let's see. I see you have a couple of notes about how he ended up distributing his products. Yeah, he he was very interesting. He got into the export market actually fairly early on into the company's history. So as we said, his his main experience. So when he was at that original pub that his stepmother and his stepfather both actually were at, he was mainly brewing ales. Now, when he opened up the St. James's Gate Brewery, he did introduce porters, but he was still brewing ales. The reason he switched over fully into porters is because at the time, the UK was producing massive amounts of porter beer. And porter beer was named after basically working class men called porters who were known for drinking this darker, kind of heavier, malty, smoky style of beer. And... That sold much better than his ales. So yeah. he switched over to full porter production. Porters that were darker in their profile, heavier in body, had a more roasty, even more smoky character, became to be known as porter stouts, mm-hmm. which he began to focus on. The official stouts 
that were like labeled specifically as stouts didn't come around until about the 1840s, so a few decades later. But these darker, heavier styles of beer were being experimented with while he was still operating the brewery. His export market came in fairly early on because he started brewing what is called the West India Porter. This is kind of akin to not necessarily an IPA, but it did have, I believe, about double the hops of his regular porter to act as a preservative so that he could export it overseas to different markets. Africa, actually, is a huge market for Guinness, particularly Nigeria. Nigeria is the second largest consumer of Guinness outside of the UK, and the United States is third. To this day, that is still the case. And so the West India Porter became a very widely distributed product, which he expanded upon. That eventually kind of turned into his double stout, uh, again in the 1840s. Porters were retired from the product line in 1973, officially, but were introduced again in 2014. It didn't last. last. And they actually brought back the West Indies Porter and the Dublin Porter under their Porter headings. So, like Michael said, this operation grew not just within Ireland, but trade-wise globally very quickly. They were shipping to South America, again to Africa, to the United States, uh, very early on in the company's history. They had a very big eye on expanding outward. Yeah, well, and so they first started exporting in 1778 when they Mm -hmm. were just throwing things into England. It wasn't until a little bit later than that that he ended up giving one of the most significant contributions to Ireland in general. And that was actually that he made one of the first railways that would connect all the parts Mm -hmm. of Ireland. They didn't have a national distribution system before him. Yeah. But the thing that allowed him to expand so much was kind of two-pronged. A lot of brewers were very hesitant to use newer technologies. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to understand, we are going into the Victorian era. And what is the one thing every theater kid thinks of when they think about the Victorian era? Steampunk. Steam, in particular. You see, most breweries were still using a cart and horse in order to do things like grinding malt. Mm -hmm. And they were still using people with shovels in order to boil mash. They didn't do that. They actually were able to increase the amount of people that they were hiring by integrating technologies into a factory setting. So by integrating these things, I guess no longer employing the horses, which, you know, once the horses unionize, we'll have a problem. (laughs) But, you know, being able to hire more hands at the actual brewery because of the fact that they are able to now grind things using steam power. And then they're actually able to boil the mash using steam power. Also, using the manpower that they had in order to create a new fermentation method. Yeah. These methods of integrating new technology, while at the same time using that technology to allow for more workers to be hired, is one of the defining things that made Guinness not only innovative, but also kind of heroic to a folk level. There is one other element to this success though that Mm. is less heroic and more selfish a little bit and that is that at the time 
Part of the reason porters were so popular in Ireland and not just the UK is the tax rates favored importing those beers over exporting Irish beer over to the UK. Mm-hmm. Arthur didn't like that. That got in the way of his business. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, he was making better porters than a lot of the porter producers in the UK were making themselves. Again, partially because of that technology factor. So he lobbied the government and basically got those rates. I don't think they were necessarily flipped one for one, but he flipped the trade over where all of a sudden his beer was getting exported over to the UK at a far greater rate than the UK was exporting their beer over to Ireland. Yeah. Which also massively helped his business because that was a huge market for porters at the time. Oh, 100%. You need to be able to export your stuff, especially Mm -hmm. since he was making it at such a high rate. A lot of people who visited that brewery at the time said that it was basically like its own city block Yeah, at that point. He was making things at a massive scale. Well, If you look at that building today... It is the size of a city block. Yeah. No, it is. It's actually and a they have expanded attraction. It. Yeah, they, they have expanded it, but it is it is a city block. Yeah. And even the Guinness Book of World Records was actually first created as a way of getting more tourists into that building. Yep. There's, I think, uh, an Airbnb set up in it now. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, <laughs> by the way, we gotta. We gotta. We gotta. When we get the Patreon launched. <laughs> yeah, once we <laughs> the Patreon, it's like, it's like some equipment. And then, like, that we Airbnb stay in Dublin. (laughs) There's this one Airbnb reservation. (laughs) No, I love it. Uh, So one of the reasons, though, that you might find that this particular company has kind of transcended into the realm of folklore, this, this folk hero thing, is because Ireland was going through something very specific during the 1800s. Yeah. The Great Famine, as Mm -hmm. it was called. This was very significant. During that time, Ireland was largely agrarian. Many people worked as tenant farmers or laborers on farms. Land was often held by wealthy landlords who charged maybe concerningly high rents um, without much thought for the welfare of their tenants. I'm so glad we've progressed past that as a society. It's so good to see moral advancement is linear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. History never regresses. No, 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 yeah. no. And, you know, when you are undercutting the workforce that supports your wealth, that's never going to negatively affect your wealth as a middle or high class person. Just yeah. so you know, yeah. you got nothing to worry about. You're set. You're fine. Yeah. You know, so... People just for paying money to live where they lived were actually not able to do things like pursue a better understanding of things like hygiene or to invest in themselves or to feed themselves. Yeah. So in addition to poverty, Ireland ended up facing a lot of disease and then they started to face some famine in the mid 19th century. So we're still talking 1800s for those of you who don't know how that verbiage works. Uh, The country was hit by a series of just... Not to be condescending or anything. (laughs) Honestly, it took me a while in school to get that because it was just like, so it's the 19th century. So it's the 1800s. Yeah, you said, okay, here's how you remember it. Yeah. If you you don't know. Century starts at year zero. Yeah, yeah. Zero AD. Mm -hmm. So there is no one in front of any of those first two digits. So that's the first century. All you have to do is just subtract one from a century, if someone says century, and then that's your hundreds. Yeah, you're counting up. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so <laughs> anyway, the, the things that they ended up facing was a bunch of really bad potato crops. Yes. Uh, there was something going on there where the potatoes just weren't getting big enough. And not that you need to know this, but the way that you grow potatoes is that you cut them into a bunch of smaller parts and then you plant them and then they're supposed to get bigger. But they didn't do that. They just regrew their skins in a slightly potato-like shape. Yeah. And it wasn't working so well. In point of fact, it was estimated that more than a million people from 1845 to 1852 died of starvation or disease during that time. Yeah. So it was not a small event, and they still haven't actually fully recovered from all of that. But the only way that they did start to kind of recover was because of Arthur Guinness. His brewery ended up becoming such a massive employer that mm -hmm. it was helping them in that way but also because of the fact that he was trying to perfect his brewing techniques science behind things like sanitation started to advance yeah especially once the implementation of something called stainless steel happened correct just used in order to protect the fermentation this gave them insight as to how much corruption or, or contamination could actually be caused by a lack of proper cleaning. I do want to make a point, and this is something that I have heard about Arthur Guinness before, that I don't know if you found this in the literature, but I did not find this in any sources I looked at. Um, and that was that because of the famine, part of his brewing was to try and make a um, nutrient-dense drink for the working class. I could not find evidence of that per se, it's probably like a happy coincidence byproduct of that. But the social good of Arthur Guinness was much more like you just said, the fact that not only was he a large employer, he was a very conscientious employer. Mm -hmm. He actually was very progressive for the time in terms of providing health insurance to his employees, subsidized meals for their lunch breaks, I don't know if he started the pension system or if that was Arthur II, but a pension I think that was Arthur II. A, a pension system followed pretty soon, relatively speaking, after the company was launched, and they paid very well mm -hmm. for what they did. So they really did give their employees a fighting chance at improving their conditions. Well, and also it is something to be said. Guinness stouts are very nutrient dense. Yeah. And that's it. I couldn't find specific literature. There's a lot of things like in pursuit of the perfect beer literature that kind of states that, but I couldn't yeah. find citation behind it. Again, it would not surprise if it was a happy byproduct yeah. of his obsession with developing his product. Exactly. Especially since it is a beer that reads full bodied at 4%. And at lower calories, actually, than many of your light beers mm -hmm. that advertise themselves as low calorie out there. Just now, a just a little fun fact for you. Now, in the UK, it is actually still often recommended by doctors for pregnant women to have a little Guinness. Really? That is a true thing. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, have, hmm. a, have a little bit of Guinness. It'll be all right. <laughs> it's all good for you. What What's the dosage? Do you know? Um, I think it's like three per baby, you know? Just like three beers throughout. No per night. No. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's like if you're if you want to just you know you just want to have a little bit of it because they uh, actually even advertised during the 1800s that like it had a high uh, mm. amount of iron in it. 
I know about drinking beer while you're breastfeeding is a big thing. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of things. Not a lot of that has medical backing. Any scientific at, at all. backing. In point of fact, there, there is research that has been done on the amount of iron that's in it. And there is actually a higher percentage of iron in Guinness than hmm. other beers. Interesting. It is not nutritionally going to be <laughs> fantastic for you, or I should say substantial. Just eat a steak. Yeah, eat a steak. Or if you're vegan, take a supplement. Well, broccoli actually oh, has broccoli. a lot oh, yeah. of iron. And spinach. Yeah. yeah. Eat, eat your spinach. Yeah. All of your leafy greens actually are pretty good for a macronutrient profile. Right? Yeah. Or yeah. the denser ones, your kales, your chards. I can't believe I'm advocating for, for vegans right now. Um, <laughs> Keep listening, though. Keep listening. Uh, no. Bump that engagement. <laughs> Can you believe that they said that vegans had a point with macronutrients? It would be a shame if this clipper to go viral on TikTok. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was the other thing. So, like, as far as him personally, he was not obsessed with profits. Yeah. He was obsessed with growth, advancement. And with basically improving the lives of anybody who was touching his company. So he yeah. did a lot of charitable causes as well. He he was interesting in that he was simultaneously quite um he knew what would serve him well. Yeah. And his business well. And he would absolutely capitalize on that when he could. Mm -hmm. But he never got to a point, at least in everything I've read, where that compromised his moral positions exactly it, it's like the whole idea of you know take care of yourself so that you can take care of others sort of deal yeah i think that so often especially when we look at the american way of building business there's this kind of inherent aggressiveness that tries to say that by looking out for yourself, you kind of automatically have to go into a mode where that's all you do, mm -hmm. um, or that the ways that you get ahead is by taking advantage of others. Yeah. Like, that's what you have to do. And it's like, maybe not. Maybe you present a value sufficient so that you are taking care of yourself, so that you are profiting, so that you are growing, while at the same time understanding that what's going to satisfy you is presenting a value to as many people as possible yeah maybe it doesn't have to go that far maybe the methodology is a bit more complex than that mm -hmm. you know so you operate in the world that you're born into but you also realize your role in creating the world everybody else is born into yeah and it kind of feels as though that's what he did there there isn't a feeling of oh this guy is 100 percent just laying himself out there and letting himself dry for the sake of others it's like no he's taking care of himself and yeah. then he's also I mean, he, starting these charities. he was causes. a capitalist he was an yeah. entrepreneur he 100 but he was a very conscientious one yeah he was yeah. making sure that the people responsible for generating his wealth were taken care of and the charitable organizations that he started developing mm -hmm. were absolutely effective yeah he he was very concerned, and there is, I think, very valid critiques about this mindset because I personally do disagree with it, but the results do, again, kind of speak somewhat for themselves. Uh, he very much believed, and part of this was his religious beliefs, he was a very devout Protestant, even though, if you know anything about Irish history at this time, Catholics and Protestants did not get along well, and he actually advocated for Catholic treatment like Catholic rights, really, because mm -hmm. they were not treated well during this time. 
there's still tension to this day, but we won't get into that. Um, but it, this very deep religious sentiment that he had seemed to create this very concern for the poor mentality for him. And as Michael said, at this time, basically everyone in Ireland was poor unless you were very lucky. And from Arthur's perspective, he wanted to see the wealthy and the elites of society set the example and be moderate, temperate, not displaying excesses of wealth and luxury and hedonism. Actually, really, the only reason he wasn't uh, part of the prohibition movement at the time was because he did actually believe that liquor led to drunkenness, but beer did not. Yeah. Which there could be an argument made for that, I'm sure, at the culture at the time. Um, But he was very concerned with the poor and particularly things like their health care. He donated a lot of money to the King's Hospital in Dublin and really supported, again, health insurance and other health care programs that allowed the poor access to better quality and easier access to that better quality health care. He really wanted to promote social reforms. Uh, Duels were something that he was very opposed to. Gun duels were still very prominent in the culture of Ireland at the time, particularly among the wealthy. And he was very critical of that, very openly critical of that, because he thought it displayed needless excesses of bravado and obviously led to people dying. Uh, So he was he was very concerned with people in in a very social context. He wanted a healthy society to exist, and he wanted to do everything he could with his resources to promote that coming about. Yeah. Which is interesting, even by 1862, he had already, uh, Arthur Guinness II had actually launched a program called the Guinness Fund, which was specifically designed to help provide relief for people in times of hardship, specifically food, clothing, and medical care. Mm -hmm. Just those things. And also supported educational programs and job training. Yeah. So there was this kind of holistic approach to trying to make sure that people had what they needed in order to make sure that society in general had the best chance it could. Yeah. Now, again, some of these things are a little bit moralistic, and some of them are not from a bad place, but if they were maybe pursued a little bit more aggressively, I would have had a problem with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of another thing that kind of separates him and his son is the fact that none of these were aggressively imposed. Mm -hmm. They were presented. Yeah, they were... From my gathering of their personalities and what we have available in records from them now, they very much seem to have a, we won't impose upon you what we think should happen, or we won't try and force that to happen, but we really believe this is the best way forward. And if you want to participate in it, here's the option. Exactly. Which is a position I can respect. 100%. You can't, if you have a well-formulated, heartfelt belief that you think is really going to usher people forward, and you can communicate it openly and honestly with people without an expectation that everybody must follow your way of thinking, I'm pretty sure that's what everybody should be. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. It's when you start trying to impose it on other people that we start seeing a problem. Then I'll oppose you no matter who you are. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want your free cake. You're trying to force me to eat it. The cake is a lie, my guy. (laughs) (laughs) And I am still alive. And I'm still alive. 
Still alive. Play Portal if you have it. It's a great game. If it's cheesecake, then maybe I'll accept. Uh, what else do we want to talk about in regards to to Guinness? Do we want to get into maybe some of the more modern day yeah. parts of the company? There's been some scandals in the past few decades. There was a huge stock inflation scandal Ooh. that the CEO was caught in. You know, the company hasn't maintained necessarily a spotless uh I mean when reputation. Yeah, when, it's gonna happen. When when you're twenty three billion dollars worth of company, this some some things are gonna go wrong, right? There's also up until the nineteen sixties, believe it or not, which I don't believe this would have started with Arthur, considering how he sympathized with the Catholics, but it was an unspoken rule at the company that if you married a Catholic, you were expected to resign from the company. Oh my god, I didn't know about this. Yes. Yeah. Are uh, you kidding me? Yeah. They were very okay with accepting the dollars of Catholics, but they did not want Catholics associated with their company in any production standpoint at all. Wow. Yeah. That's... Uh, that that did change, but again, in, in the 1960s, which, going back to Arthur, I, I kind of start to diverge from him. One thing that I understand, I think, why he believed this, he was very, you know, he wanted everyone to get along. He wanted a healthy, integrated society. I think out of that, he opposed Irish independence he wanted unity with the uk still um and he actually opposed the irish revolution that did happen during his lifetime that was an attempt to separate from the uk i personally disagree with that just because of my own political leanings but regardless of what you think about that that anti-catholic sentiment didn't come out of nowhere it's not right per se but i can't help but wonder if it came about because of just the cultural attitudes of ireland leading up to the 1960s and then you know the 1960s was a big decade of change for most of western countries in terms of tolerance and social attitudes and stuff like that so i wonder if that's what what kind of undid that and it's a much more complex history than it is over over here yes across the pond yes because once we separated from england we didn't share a border with England. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There there wasn't so much uh, opportunity for certain things to be things. Yes. Also, the Guinness World Records is kind of a scam. Oh, yeah. 100%. You can spend $10,000 and basically buy those records. All you need is an adjudicator to sign off on whatever you're doing, and well, you, you have it. I know what we're doing. For the podcast <laughs> most listened to podcast ten thousand dollars let's do it let's do it let's do it <laughs> all right that's the next patreon goal <laughs> oh god so wait a minute couple hundred dollars of equipment uh-huh an airbnb, airbnb stay and a guinness and book of world records <laughs> for for the guinness book of world it's records. what the people want michael <laughs> I the mean, listeners have gonna... been asking for us to have a world record with guinness <laughs> <laughs> it's it's what the people will want after Guinness tells them yeah. it's what what they wanted and what they bought, I guess. Well, that's another thing I think that's worthy of discussing with the Guinness company is you mentioned that the the world records division is basically a marketing technique. 100%. Guinness is really good with their marketing. Mm-hmm. They are on point. In fact, there was a whole and maybe this is part of the reason why the UK still prescribes Guinness to pregnant women. 
Uh, at the turn of last century, they actually had a huge and very successful ad campaign talking about how Guinness is healthy for you. Mm. Now, as we said earlier, Guinness is lower in calories than most other beers. Lower uh, in alcohol. Lower in alcohol. Um, it is somewhat nutrient dense for a beer, at least. So, sure. But it's still alcohol. Alcohol, the literature is out on whether it's as bad for you as some people will say, but there's also no literature that it's good for you either. It's in a fact, carcinogenic. It, it is. It is a. It's. It's literally poison. Yeah. Um. But if you know medical language at all, it's poison is the dosage, not necessarily the the product itself. But saying all that to say, water's poison. If you drink enough of it, that that's it true. Is you can die from true. it. But yeah. again. But that's why they say dosage makes the poison. But yeah, drink in moderation, please. Um, Don't drink in excess. But all that to say... All that to say, the Guinness Company still seems to maintain a very, at least a veneer of respectability. And, And I say at least a veneer, not that I doubt that veneer. As far as I know, they haven't really reneged on treating their employees well. They are still very conscientious. They actually were very early in the game to try and make the company more green Mm -hmm. from an ecological standpoint. They actually shut down some facilities that they consider to be too inefficient and too wasteful in the efforts of doing that. So the company still does good things, but I do think they're a good example of, and this is something I noticed in, in reading about them, especially on their website, was this history is very clean. Yeah. It's very friendly. It's very, very approachable, very marketable history. And I think that it's the people with Billy clubs. Exactly. It's it's a good example of we can separate wheat from chaff in these situations. Guinness has done a lot of good, particularly for the beer world. Again, the technology that they developed has served the entire industry. Oh, and they're really. they're an Irish icon yeah. as far as their to heritage. To this day. And they help them out of poverty and to this day are contributing to charitable causes, mm-hmm. to education, to sanitation, to housing. Yeah. So they do good things, but they also do some not so good things. And I like talking about this subject, I think particularly where we can on this podcast, because the alcohol world in general is so marketing driven Mm -hmm. and there's so many young plucky startup stories in all of your big prominent liquor brands and your wine brands and your beer brands that might be even 90 percent true but it's still worth it to examine these companies with a little bit more rigor and say yes you've done a lot of good but Maybe you shouldn't have inflated your stock price and defrauded investors, potentially. (laughs) Well, maybe you shouldn't be promoting an alcoholic beverage as a health product. Exactly. But I think that's also a good point, especially nowadays, where it's like you do need to be able to separate the good from the bad as far as an influence from a company, as far as an impact without necessarily deciding that it's all good or all bad Mm -hmm. the choices cannot be money or fire yeah yeah you know and there there needs to be nuance things are not well most things are not existing in a binary of good or evil exactly well and even good or evil I, i like to think of things as far as impact and maybe approaching a company like guinness with a scalpel is a little bit better in general for the impact that you'll have 
Yeah. If you can actually consider the fact that your judgment is your responsibility at that point. Yeah. So there's that. Well, to close things out, maybe, do we want to give our favorite Guinness drinks? And how to drink favorite them. Favorite Guinness drinks. Now, because Guinness understand. Guinness is very picky about how you serve Guinness. Yeah. So obviously the best is in Ireland from a tap. Yes. Yeah. That has to be. I've never had it because I've never been to Ireland. There was one study done that technically proved that it tastes better in Ireland, but the study was not very rigorous yeah and i'm pretty sure guinness paid for it so which one are you referring to i i don't remember the name of the study it was it's literally like i think the only actual study that's been done and it was only done i want to say 33 participants so it's not so an actual like they tried to make this clinical they tried i mean that a sample size of 33 is not statistically significant enough to make any sweeping generalization yeah I, i would i would need to know in the U.S., I know how we serve it. Normally from a can. Normally from a can. They don't even pour it into a glass most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm so which, sorry. Which I will say, Guinness is literally formulated to be poured into a glass. Yeah. Drinking it from whatever pack, even the bottle, we have the bottles of the extra stout with us right now, is not how it was designed to be drank. Now, Guinness has this, how many steps is it? It's like, six steps or something of like how to serve it properly half of that is probably just marketing stuff but there is truth in that they legitimately want you to pour this into a glass because the head releases the aromatics Mm -hmm. the nitrogen gets activated it does in theory at least make the beer genuinely taste better well and it it should actually Um, yeah hold on let me let me squeak my chair a bit um and it should in fact most beers you want to pour into a glass simply because of the fact that it also lowers the amount of carbon that's in it exactly now these guys already are pretty low carbon i would say that these are slight beads yeah um this isn't a carbon heavy thing it's more about the nitrogen yeah it's it's about the nitrogen and it's about that kind of roasty smooth flavor Mm -hmm. but yeah pour it in a glass that is the way you got to do it now we are enjoying the extra stout the nitro cans, they're okay. I found them to be a little watery for my taste. I, I will say for stouts, and I think part of this is we live, again, in Richmond, one of the craft brew capitals of the United States. But all of them are so cloyingly sweet. Oh, not all of them. So uh, mo- most of them. them. Most of them, I, I will I, agree. I'm sorry. I did dip into hyperbole for a moment <laughs> because of an emotional need for the catharsis of just being like stop it no i mean i get it and i love stouts and i i do agree with you on that um yeah. too many of them are too sweet and so i think that does influence how we perceive guinness stouts because guinness stouts again are lighter than most other stouts to begin with and we're in a market where there's sugar the malt's yeah. roasted to oblivion there's flavoring at Walnut it there's all paste. this stuff yeah but like I think many of them are delicious. Don't get me wrong. But that being said, the extra stout for me is what I normally gravitate to if Mm -hmm. I'm going to drink Guinness, particularly if I'm not drinking it at a bar where I can get it at a tap. Because from a tap, I actually normally really do enjoy Guinness. Oh, yeah. It is one of the few stouts you can have at the height of a Richmond summer, though. I will say that. That's true. Yeah. And that's valuable. That is very valuable. If you don't want the PBR, that's only a dollar. <laughs> Go with a Guinness. For only three more. For only three more. 
<laughs> better than the eight dollar you know craft on tap special whatever that's going to be honestly yeah thank you guys so much for joining us in our guinness episode unless there's anything else that you want to mention happy national beer day happy national beer day hope Grab you guys had a good beer hope you guys have a good beer if you haven't celebrated yet yeah uh i hope that you're able to find some amazing craft breweries in your area mm -hmm. uh i will most certainly be headed to one of our many amazing establishments i think my my favorite beer uh my recommendation would be the golden stout from Vossen, which if you haven't had is actually a gorgeous beer it has all of the notes of a stout but it is a golden color and doesn't have kind of the undertone of of roasty mm -hmm. uh it's a clean roast if yeah. i can call it that it's a very delicious beer well i guess i have to give a recommendation now as well so i will say even though they're not richmond natives ardroit theory which are now this is so on brand for me basically like all of their beers are horror themed they have a all i see is carry on beer which has this really gnarly packaging this is belgian quad that mm -hmm. is actually quite lovely they have a call of cthulhu beer which literally has cthulhu on the label honestly all of them look like bosses from like bloodborne bloodborne or elden ring yeah and the reason i'm recommending them i've never had a bad beer from them um if we want to go richmond natives even though this is technically not in richmond they're in goochland um licking hole creek is probably my favorite more localized brewery they tend to do those heavy sugary stouts that michael was talking about earlier i really like them their blueberry imperial stout in particular i really like it's not overly fruity and it's not overly sweet for me at least and the blueberry just provides a really nice pop of well, blueberry and then i personally just love blueberries in general so anything flavored with blueberry i'm probably gonna like but that stout is very good so those are my recommendations those good recommendations but yeah this has been our april 7th national beer day special where we talked about guinness a beautiful company with a very interesting but i would hope uh cumulatively positive i would say so impact yeah so thank you guys so much for joining us next time on laid back lush <laughs> should we keep it a surprise i want to keep it a surprise actually but there is we we will be experimenting with technology and yeah. why we're going to be giving a little quiz to a very special guest yes yes so and and doing a little bit of fact checking yes so we hope that you will uh enjoy we are very excited about this episode yeah just the concept as soon as because gabe is the one that pitched this concept to me and it was just like oh oh okay <laughs> yeah. yeah we're doing it it's yeah. going in the movie <laughs> uh, but thank you guys so much again uh please do follow us at laidback lush on instagram twitter tiktok and all the various things and as always please do share our podcasts we appreciate you very much and rate the podcast we never say to rate the podcast oh, yeah. but ratings actually do help podcasts a lot so you know give us those wonderful five stars if you're willing we will see you next time, though, guys. Thank you again for listening. And yes. Cheers. Cheers.